Now, if you have your Bibles, um, if you would please open them with me to the book of Jude. To the book of Jude. We're going to be tackling a, uh, a, a book in the Bible for the next several weeks in this series that's going to cover a ton of topics. It's going to cover topics like salvation. It's going to cover uh, topics like false prophets or false prophecy. It's going to cover a topic uh, of apostasy or an apostate, someone who once said they followed or believed in God and has now given that up and is walking in a different direction. And today uh, we're kicking off this series, Fighting for Truth in an Age of Deceit. Fighting for Truth in an Age of Deceit. Now, uh, for those of you who are Gold Star students in here this morning, um, I want you to hold your place in Jude, and I also want you to flip to Matthew chapter 24. Uh, we're going to be in both places today. Uh, we'll start out in Jude, go to Matthew 24, and then we're going to come back to Jude. We, we need to cover something uh, today that will help us lay the groundwork for uh, the next several weeks of this series. Now, um, I have this question for you, or I, I guess really a statement. Over the course of my life, I've come to realize that no matter how hard we try, at some point, every single one of us is going to encounter health problems. Amen? Every single one of us is going to encounter health problems. For some, the health problem becomes more of a crisis, where others, it's a simple sickness or an illness that is cured and then it's passed. But no matter how hard we fight to prevent our bodies from decaying, at some point your body starts to break down. I love what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, where he said, We do not lose heart, though our outward man perishes or, or wastes away in some versions. Our inner man is being renewed day by day. I've also come to realize that it's not just our bodies that decay, but it's also our possessions. It's our possessions. Stuff breaks. And if you have kids, it breaks more frequently. It gets old. Something wears out. It breaks down. Have you ever noticed in your life that right after you make the final payment on something, or right after the warranty expires, or a week after it just breaks? Anybody else experience that in their life? Right? It's inevitable that at some point the new things that we buy, they break. Now, while we know that our bodies and our possessions are decaying, that doesn't mean that we should just sit around and do nothing, right, church? We shouldn't just sit around and do nothing. We realize that there is a biblical principle here of being a good steward of both our bodies and our blessings. We know that life itself is precious and any possession that we have is a gift from God. So we have to live every single day with this awareness of the reality that sometimes we must take action in order to prevent problems from getting worse. How many of you in here have ever heard the old adage, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure? Now, as we study our way through this very short book in the Bible, we will be confronted with the reality that the truths of God's word must be protected. We're going to be confronted with the reality that we must prevent these truths from decaying in our own lives. If there was ever a cause worth contending for, it is the cause of Christ. Amen, church? It is the cause of Christ. Now, if you would look with me at verse number one of Jude. Jude starts off by saying, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love 
be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now the book of Jude was written to help the believer identify a major problem that had entered into the church. The truths of God's word were under attack. Now this should not be a surprise to us sitting here this morning and it was not a surprise to the early church. In fact, everywhere that you turn, God or anything to do with Christianity here in our culture is under attack. Marriage is under attack. Schools are attacking our children or indoctrinating them with things that are antithetical of that of Scripture. And so we as believers have, have a job, a duty to protect those truths, not just in our lives, but in the lives of others. In fact, church, Jesus warned before he... Uh, before he died and ascended into heaven, Jesus warned that this very thing was going to happen. Now, for those of you who have your Bible marked, if you would turn with me over to Matthew chapter 24. I want to read to you this morning something that will hopefully lay the groundwork as to what's going on here. What is Jude even talking about? Look at verse number one in, in chapter 24 of Matthew. It says that Jesus left the temple and he was going away. And when the disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, he answered them. You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be one, not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat at the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be, be the signs of your coming in the end of the age? I want us to just stop right there for a moment. The disciples are asking Jesus questions about his bold predictions concerning the destruction of the temple. And it's appropriate, really, in this time for such a discourse between Jesus and the disciples. I mean, the religious leaders had already rejected Jesus, and he would soon be delivered to the Romans for crucifixion. Now, he knew, Jesus knew the bitter fate that was waiting for him when he went to Jerusalem, and he wanted to give the disciples and any other follower hope and confidence that they would soon be greatly tested, but they would be able to make it through. The disciples are sitting here, and they're asking Jesus this question. And in their minds, the destruction of the temple and the end of the age were probably connected, but they didn't know how or when it was going to happen. And they asked two specific questions here. Two. And the second question is answered in the remainder of this chapter. And so I would, I would challenge you uh, to go home today and read through the rest of chapter 24. It's not that long. Read through the rest of Matthew chapter 24 and see what happens. But I want to spend just a moment because Jesus answers these questions and he makes many specific comments and predictions about the end times. A lot of them. In fact, these predictions have been the source of significant disagreements amongst Christians who have tried to understand them in the church setting. Now, I want to just kind of make something really clear here this morning. Um, I don't have time to fully unpack uh, the book of Revelation. I, I did that last year, and I will probably be doing another study in the book of Revelation in, in the, the months uh, or possibly year to come. Uh, but I will say this. Um, we, as believers, should not think of Jesus' return as an event that is on some far-off timeline. We shouldn't think of it that way. In fact, we've been running alongside of Jesus' return or parallel to it since the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts. 
And so as a church, uh, the, the moment of Jesus' return could come at any time. And, and we know this from Scripture. Now, I want you to look at verse number 4. Verse number 4 in Matthew 24 says, And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. If you have your physical Bible, I want you to underline that phrase, and the end is not yet. Verse 7, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famine and earthquake in various places, and all of these are but the beginning of the birth pains. The beginning of the birth pains. Now from the outset, Jesus warned the disciples that many would be deceived as they anticipated his return. There have been times in the history of the church when rash predictions were made and they were relied upon. And when they were, they resulted in disappointment and disillusionment and even falling away from Christianity. Now, I know nobody was alive, but any of you who have ever studied church history, there is one notable example that I could think of right out of the gate as I was studying this. And it was in 1844. There was a man by the name of William Miller here in the United States. And because of his prophetic interpretations and calculations and even publications, there were hundreds of thousands of people who believed here in the United States that Jesus was going to return in the year 1844. And when he did not return, there was great disappointment and falling away. But worse than any of those, cultic groups formed out of those prophetic predictions. Those who would eventually lead people astray or away from the truths of God's word. And these are the kind of things that Jesus is mentioning in this section. And that they are not the things that mark specific signs of the end. In, in effect, Jesus said, catastrophes will happen, but the end is not yet. Catastrophes will come. And in the midst of any great war, or any great famine, or any great epidemic or pandemic, it is natural to believe the world is coming to an end. It's natural to believe those things. But Jesus said there's a far more significant sign that would indicate his return, and he describes it later in this chapter. And though none of these events are the specific signs of the end, collectively they are a sign that we are nearing the end. You know, when, when Jesus described these calamities as the beginning of sorrows, he literally said it's the beginning of labor pains. It's the beginning of labor pains. Just as it is with, with true labor, uh, for those of you who are moms, we expect that the things mentioned, wars and, and famine and earthquakes and so on, they will become more frequent. They, they will become more intense like contractions do in, in labor. And this will all happen before the return of Jesus without any one of them being a specific sign of the end. Now look with me at verse number 9. And they, they, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Any of these things sound familiar in our culture and society today? And because, and, and many false prophets will rise and lead many astray, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. 
and, the gospel, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. You know, in the period after Jesus ascended into heaven at the beginning of the book of Acts, and before he returns, we should expect to be persecuted. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that after I ascend and before I come, every believer and follower of Jesus Christ Christ will see many false prophets rise, and we will even see their success as false prophets. Jesus is saying that after I ascend into heaven and before I return, every follower of me should expect to see society becoming worse and worse and worse as the days go on. Are we not seeing those things now, church? All of those things are present right now in this day and age, and they are worse than they were two years ago and five years ago and ten years ago. It's increasingly getting worse. But guess what, church? There is a promise here by Jesus. There was a promise that before the end, the gospel would go out to the entire world. Jesus is saying, church, persecution, false prophets, the general downgrade of our society would not prevent the spread of the gospel. And that is a great spot for an amen. Nothing prevents the spread of the gospel. It was promised by Jesus himself. And church, each and every one of us is to take that duty seriously. Each and every one of us is to hold tightly to the command that was given to us in the Great Commission. Matthew chapter eight or 28, just a few chapters after this. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them, and teaching them these truths that Jesus showed them. So church, you and I must prevent these truths from decaying in our lives. We must prevent these truths from decaying in the lives of every person in our circle of influence. You want to know what's really sad? The sad reality is that often Christians take those truths and they bottle them up and they don't ever talk about them. What's really sad is, is that less than 3% of those who label themselves as Christians actually share the gospel. Less than 3%, less than 5% of Christians think they need to read the Bible. How will we know the truth? How will we prevent it from decaying in our lives if we're not enthralled in everything that is that of Jesus Christ? We can't. In fact, in fact, There are so many people that are in churches today that have had their life touched by truth, but never transformed. Their life was never transformed by truth. And you want to know what Peter says? This verse is going to hit the screen. Look at what Peter says about those who who have experienced truth, but have not been transformed. Look at this. It says, for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandments that were delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. You see, the hog took a bath and looked better. The dog got sick 
and felt better. But both of them went right back to their old ways. There was never any real or true lasting change in those people's lives. Their nature had not been transformed by the truth of God's word. I've been in ministry long enough. I've counseled more people than I I would care to have shared. And and I've learned something. You can be around truth and it can affect you. But that truth must transform your life. And when that truth transforms your life, you realize that this right here, we realize that this is worth contending for. We realize that we must hold tightly to this, like we were seeing earlier, because it is the one that gives us eternal life. It is the one that, that plants the seeds deep within us, and it, it causes fruit to be born in our lives. I would go as far as to say that this is the most important thing worth contending for. Right here. For those of you who are note takers, I want you to write something down for me. God's people often forget the importance of truth, but our enemy never does. Our enemy never forgets the importance of truth. It was A.W. Tozer that said the devil is a better theologian than any of us and is a devil still. So as we begin, as we begin to study through the book of Jude, there are three words that I think will help us understand this little book a little bit more. It will help lay the groundwork for where we're headed over the next several weeks. And so uh, I want you to write down the word relation. Relation. So who was Jude? Who is this guy? He says that he is a servant of Jesus and he's the half-brother of James, or he's the brother of James. So flip with me back to Jude if, if you've got your Bibles. Jude in verse one, number one, a servant of Jesus and brother uh, of James. Now, we all know that he and James are brothers by the text, but if you did not know, they are also the half-brothers of Jesus, Jude and James are the half-brothers of Jesus. What's interesting is that initially James nor Jude embraced or believed in Jesus. We know from the Gospel of John chapter 7 that that John records that neither did his brethren believe in him. Now this of course changed. How many of you were here when we did our study on the book of James last fall? We spent like 10 weeks in the book of James, right? We learned that James became the main leader of the church at Jerusalem. He has Jesus' brother. Now Jude, though was a brother of Jesus, was never an apostle. And he tells us here later in the chapter, and we'll cover this in the weeks to come, Jude is never an apostle. He distinguishes himself in simple humility as a servant. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. In fact, when James referred to himself as a servant, he was referring to himself as a bondservant or or the lowest of all servants. And to to be precise, he dispensed with trying to use his relationship to, to Jesus as something for leverage. 
Jude knew who he had been, and he knew who he was now with Jesus Christ. His relationship did not rest in his family ties to Jesus, but in a newfound relationship to his master. In fact, his name is recorded for us in English as Jude, but his true born biblical name is Judas. His name is Judas. It was changed because that name Judas was often associated with Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus. And so coming to us, his name was given to us as Jude so that he would be recognized often as the brother of Jesus, the one who finally believed. It's interesting that Christ changed and transformed his life and Jude knew that he belonged to Jesus. That was his relationship. And so it should be with us if we are saved. We must realize this morning, church, that it is not this church, it is not our parents, it's not our education or anything else that is to be clung to, but simply our relationship to Jesus through salvation. You know, we too should be humbled and recognize that we are simply a servant of the king. You know, our salvation, the, the called, as Jude says, are those who believe and are in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And Jude says that our relationship with Christ brings a clear blessing that we can build our lives around. Now, before I tell you that blessing, um, I don't want you to get caught off guard by this because um, the blessing is, in fact, that we are sanctified. The blessing is the fact that we are sanctified. Now, you may be sitting in here this morning and being like, sanctification is the worst part of the Christian life because I'm constantly being stretched. I'm constantly having to grow. I'm constantly being put into situations where I have to be grace-filled and merciful and forgiving and loving towards people who are not those things. But sanctification, church, is a blessing Jude lays it out very clearly that sanctification or to be sanctified means to be set apart for holy use, to be set apart by God, and it's a twofold process. We are saved from or out of the world, out of darkness, unto good works, to be used for God's purposes and for his glory. And that is our calling in effect, to live a holy and separated life serving the one who saved you. I want you to look at this, this verse on the screen. Now, oftentimes, we, we hear Ephesians chapter 2, and we automatically run to verses 8 and 9. You have been saved by grace through faith, right? That it's a gift of God, not of man, lest man would boast. We always run to those two verses, but we always stop. We always stop, and probably one of, one of the most crucial and important verses in that entire chapter is verse number 10. And it says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Listen to this, church, which God had before ordained that we should walk in them. He before ordained that we should walk in them. One of the blessings of sanctification is the fact that God saves us, not merely to save us from the wrath that we rightly deserve, but he saves us to be able to make something beautiful of us. We are his workmanship which translates in the Greek to a word called poema. We are God's beautiful 
poem. Poema. God's love transforms us into a beautiful poem. How many of you in here have experienced the transforming love of God? Aren't you grateful that God's love and mercy and and grace and forgiveness meets you right where you're at? And then when we receive it, that love always takes us to where we should be going. Always. The love of God that saved our soul changes our life. It changes our life. And the beautiful thing that God is making in every single one of us is active in good works. It's active. These are just as much a part of God's plan as anything else. These these good works are valid evidence that someone is walking as one of God's children. And so for us this morning, sanctification must be understood in the sense that now that each one of us is saved, we seek to know the Lord's purpose for our life, and then we obey it. We obey everything that comes along. In fact, the good works are not just some nice deeds that we do, church. Our good works are not just acts of service that that happen when we meet here on Sunday for church. It's not just some external show. Those good works, in essence, speak to a life that is changed and transformed by the truths of God's word. You know, that doesn't mean doing a work for God. It's God performing his work in and through you because you have believed. So relation is the first word that we need to grasp in order to understand this book. The second this morning is the word exhortation. Exhortation. How many of you would raise your hand and say, I love to be encouraged by other people? If you didn't raise your hand, you're a liar. Everybody loves to hear some some great things from somebody else about yourself. Right? Jude exhorts the believer here and encourages us in verse number 2 and part of 3. Look at this. He says, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, he's he's exhorting and encouraging us. He's writing to believers in light of what he is about to say and share. He reminds us of these important blessings. You know, this is not the same greeting that we hear of Paul in three quarters of the New Testament. Paul typically opened his letters by saying something along the lines of, Grace and peace be unto you. Jude starts out by saying, hey, I'm a servant, I'm the brother of James, and to those who are called beloved in God and Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. It's substantially the same thing as what Paul said in the heart and the mind of Jude. It wasn't enough to have mercy and grace and peace added to your life. He wanted it multiplied. He wanted it exponentially multiplied in the life of every single believer. He looked, he looked to multiply it. You know, Jude's initial desire was to write about their common salvation. Write that, hey, we are all believers and I'm about to write to you a letter. But something happened here. Something happened and Jude found it necessary to write a completely different letter. 
you know, we might say that this was the letter that didn't want to be written. The letter of Jude is essentially a sermon. You guys are going to get probably nine or ten sermons. But Jude's letter here was initially or essentially a sermon. And in it, Jude preaches against the dangerous practices and doctrines that put the gospel of Jesus Christ in peril. There were serious issues, and I love the fact that Jude deals with them seriously. He, we, we should be happy here this morning. We should be joy-filled that Jude was sensitive to the Holy Spirit when he wrote this. We should be joy-filled because we might have only been uh, able to read a Christian letter by a Christian leader to a particular church, and instead this became a precious instrument that was inspired by the Holy Spirit to, to bring about valuable warnings for the church today. Jude uses here in the text twice special terms of endearment when he says beloved you know these these people were special to Jude he's expressing pastoral care and concern for them he wanted to write about salvation i mean who doesn't want to talk about salvation right but instead he begins to write about something that was more needful and he begins to reveal to them what it is. And so the third word that we have to grasp here this morning and understand is the word revelation. Relation, exhortation, and revelation. You know, perhaps the last thing that the church is expecting to hear is get ready to contend. Get ready to contend. But this is exactly what Jude is revealing to them. It's what God's word was given it was given to them, church, and, and, and I, I want to say fortunately, it's given to us as well. It's given to us as well. The warning has been given. There was a great need that Jude interrupted his intended letter to address, exhorting the church then, but the church now, to contend earnestly for the faith. You know, the ancient Greek word here for contend is, comes from the athletic world. It is a word that is used when speaking of wrestling or a wrestling mat, and it is a strengthened form of the word to agonize. He's saying you must agonize over truth. You must hold it tightly. You must strongly protect and guard it in your own lives, meaning that we have a hard and diligent work that we have to do here in this place, church. We contend earnestly for the faith. We agonize, we protect, we guard, we prevent from decaying because that truth is valuable. Amen? You know, uh, my wife and I, um, my wife and I are, uh, well, I'm going to say me and my wife just tags along, but I am a huge art and history buff. Um, I love going to museums, and I'm the guy that goes to the museum, and I have to read every single piece of paper and every plaque that is next to every single item that's in the museum, and I could spend hours and hours and hours in the museum. My wife tags along and then tells me that she's having a good time because she knows I enjoy it. I've been in museums, in art museums, in history museums, in probably six or eight states. And I've come to realize something in, in being in these. Um, you walk into a, a, an art gallery, um, and there are no guards and no sort of security systems, 
you automatically draw the conclusion there is nothing valuable in this room. Nothing at all. Why? Because valuables are protected. Valuables are protected. Worthless things are not. I've been in museums where they had guards and glass containers that were bulletproof for a little piece of, of an artifact that's an inch by an inch long. It was valuable. Now you may be sitting here this morning thinking, Pastor, how do I protect? How do I prevent truth from decaying? What has anything that you said to me today, how can I tangibly take that from here and go? How can I be prepared for next week when we dive further into this book? We contend for the faith when we give an unflinching witness to the people around us. We, we contend for the faith when we make it possible for the training of faithful ambassadors of Jesus Christ. We contend for the faith when we strengthen the hands of faithful pastors to the word of God in their pulpits. That's how we contend. Well, what about something more practical? Well, I want you to put on your spiritual seatbelts with me for a moment. Because this is one of the most difficult things, church. The most practical way that we contend for the faith is by living uncompromised lives. By living uncompromised lives. Christian lives that have been changed and transformed by the word of God hold tightly to the truths that have changed and transformed our lives. If we don't hold tightly to the truths in our marriage, if we don't hold tightly to those truths as we parent, if we don't hold tightly to those truths in our workplaces and with our families, guess what? Relationships fall apart. Our job falls apart Parenting becomes difficult and hard because we have not followed the truth of God's word. Marriages fall apart. Relationships are broken apart by sinfulness, by lust, by alcohol, by drugs, by pornography. These things are allowed into our lives when we do not prevent the truth from decaying in our lives. In church, I'm telling you, it is a slippery slope to walk. It is a slippery slope to walk when we don't guard and protect and contend and hold tightly to the truths of God's word. I think one of the saddest things about the fact, one of the saddest things in ministry that I see on a regular basis is the fact that truth is being perverted and subverted in every direction, even in the church. The church was in many ways blind, and in many ways today they are still blind to what Jude is talking about. We must protect truth. You know, it's interesting that we will contend and contest so many things, but when it comes to our truth, here in this word. When it comes to our faith, we will often compromise. 
we calm down because we don't want to seem fanatical. I went to a pastor's conference a couple of years ago and one of the main speakers got up and shared a story about um, this woman that he and another pastor had met at a diner. They were at a pastor's conference in New York and um, um, they they all went out as a huge group went to this diner and this lady walked up to them who was a server and her name was Sheila. And uh, they got to to talking and, and she's like, hey, what... Um, what is this big group? What are you guys doing here? Um, you know, where are you guys staying? And just having a conversation with these two guys. And uh, the one pastor turns to the server and, and he's like, Sheila, he's like, we're actually four pastors and we're at a conference and we just decided to come out to dinner tonight. And so they get to talking and Sheila's like, oh, that's really interesting. I'm a Christian. So of course, right, the pastor hears Christian, the ears perk up and you want to start having a conversation with this individual. At least that's how I am. Um, I I could talk to that chair right there if they told me they were a Christian. And so they started talking to Sheila, and Sheila began to share about her life. And and the further they got in this conversation, Sheila began to share that she had been divorced twice. And that she was going through a third divorce in the midst of them having a conversation. That she had four children, they all had different dads. That that she was a single parent parent. The, the husbands that she had divorced were no longer in the picture. She was trying to raise these girls on their own, on her own. She had no family that was close. The further and further they, they talked, Sheila began to open up more and more and more. And she, she began to tell these pastors, well, listen, I haven't stepped foot in a church since I was 18 years old. And they're like, well, Sheila, how old are you now, if you don't mind us asking? And she's like, I'm 42. She said, when I was a teenager in youth group, I didn't want to get made fun of for reading my Bible. When I was a teenager, I didn't want people to see me as a fanatic because I was outspoken about what I believed. And then I met somebody who told me, well, you can be a Christian and you don't have to go to church. You can be a Christian and you don't have to read your Bible. You can be a Christian and you don't have to listen to Christian music. You can be a Christian and you can still go and party and, and do drugs and, and drink and drink and drink. You can, you can do all those things. And so she decided to take the path of least resistance because she didn't want to be fanatical. She didn't, she didn't want to be the one that the crowd said, calm down. And little by little, Sheila began to compromise. And little by little, her marriage fell apart. Little by little, she struggled in parenting her kids. Little by little, she began to struggle at work. Little by little, she began to fall apart completely. Little by little. You know, I've learned something in all of my years of ministry that you don't go from being over here sold out for Jesus Christ to over here cheating on your spouse doing drugs and becoming an alcoholic like that it is a slow fade to give yourself away church Jesus is is calling us to contend he's calling us to protect those truths He's calling us to live uncompromised lives. 
I think Christianity is suffering the result of failing to contend. So I want to just close by asking you a couple of questions. Questions that I would like for you to ponder over the course of the week. How have you and your personal life responded to the call to contend for the faith? How have you responded? You know, God is not asking us to go out and to beat people into believing in Jesus. But by contending, we realize that there will be a real struggle involved in this life. There will be a real agony that occurs in the Christian life. Do you spend time studying out the truths of God's word? And I don't mean just skimming your Bible for 30 seconds in the morning or in the evening before you go to bed. But do you spend time studying out doctrine in the Bible that should formulate your thinking? You know, someone, someone asked me, well, what does doctrine even do? Doctrine gives you the mind of God. That's what it does. We should study out Christian doctrine and align it with the word of God because it gives us the mind of God. Can you defend, can you biblically defend the truths here in the word of God? Can you? Can you do so lovingly? Can you lovingly defend the truths of God's word? And then the last one is probably one of the hardest in this life. Do you truly display godliness in your daily living? Do you live in light of who you are? Do you live in light of who you are? I'm not talking about who you used to be. Do you live in light of who you are in your relationship with Jesus Christ? I'd like you to think over those questions over the next week and and come back next week prepared uh, to dive into the next portion of Jude. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we just thank you for this day. We thank you uh, for this portion of scripture that's already begun to challenge us in this place. God, I ask for strength for each and every one of us as we depart from here, that you would help us to live uncompromised lives, that, that we would be like David asking God to search and know us. And if there is any wicked way inside of us, God, that you would remove it, that you would use us as tools and instruments in your hand as we go forth from here to be a representation, to be ambassadors for you. God, give us divine encounters um, to encourage and exhort other believers, but divine encounters, Lord, to uh, share the gospel with the lost and hurting, those who have no hope. Um, God, just um, give us safety as we go from here. Bring us back. Um, Use the women's discipleship group this Friday to continue ministering to uh, women directly here in our church. God, we love you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for your grace and your mercy, your love and your forgiveness. And we ask and pray these things now in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen, amen, amen. We love you guys. Thank you for being here uh, for one of our worship services. And you are sent.